Hello, my name is Wendy Earl, convener of the Academy of Ideas Arts and Society Forum. I'd like to welcome you to the podcast from the event we recently held, Satirical Art and the Culture War, featuring artist Miriam Elia being interviewed about her work and what drives her by the arts consultant Manik Govinda. I hope you enjoy it. Um, so, yes, Miriam, I, I, I've known Miriam since 2008, I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when, you, when I, I was an uh, artist advisor at Arts Admin, uh, which uh, attempted to cancel me quite a few times. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, yeah, fierce resistance. Um, but Miriam was um, um, uh, a younger artist. Uh, younger and, than now. Uh, <laughs> and she came with a, a really wacky, lovely, funny gorgeous idea um, uh, that she wanted to realise, involving, um, <laughs> uh, I suppose, yes, you know, a bit of a muse, Martin Creed, yeah. um, uh, which is heavily referenced in We Go to the Gallery, yeah. if you haven't seen that. Um, uh, but yeah, we'll talk about that, but We Go to the Gallery is this lovely little um, yeah. ladybird um, appropriation, uh, and, uh, but in a very affectionate, loving way. Um, and uh, even though the bastards tried to, yeah. you know, to um, take you to court to stop you from creating them, um, so I'll give a quick background about Miriam's, uh, uh, you know, potted biography. Um, born in Muswell Hill, proper North Londoner. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, so Miriam was born to a, a kind of very modern Orthodox Jewish um, uh, family parents. Uh, one from London, the other from Beirut, um, and an artistic family. Both of them were artists. Um, went to Brighton College of Arts and Design, and then sub, uh, following that, so when she um, did her postgrad at the Royal College of Arts uh, in um, uh, West London, and um, and you completed that degree in two thousand and six, mm-hmm. and then. Um, you didn't kind of really go in straight into the art world. Yeah. You were doing stand-up comedy, various um, uh, comedy sketch shows. One of them was called A Series of Psychotic Episodes, which was on BBC Radio 4. And she was also commissioned um, to make a series of short films for um, Channel 4, um, which was uh, part of their Random Acts um, uh, series, the three-minute shorts, I believe. Uh, I hope that's still going. They're really, really wonderful. Um, but then her first publication... Uh, the Diary of Edward the Hamster, 1990 to 1990, <laughs> um, published in 2012, um, uh, which uh, I, I have and my son loved it. When he was, uh, uh, I, I bought it for him around that time in 2012, and I could hear him chuckling in his bedroom. Um, so it was a children's style uh, storybook, illustrated storybook, kind of peppered with lots of Sartrean existential angst about the meaning of life of a hamster and, um, uh, and the banality of the mean, you know, is there meaning in one's existence? Uh, so these kind of lovely uh, uh, human uh, kind of uh, uh, conditions uh, uh, being kind of uh, transferred onto the life of a hamster. So that's a, a brilliant book. I love it. And uh, I can't believe it's over 10 years old now. Um, then in 2014, her controversial We Go to the Gallery uh, was published uh, on, um, on your own imprint, Dung Beetle Books, which is very much a... That's, that's not actually... Oh, isn't it? That's right? a Harlequin ladybird. 
Ah, that's why you got sued. I, I got sued, <laughs> so I had to change it. So that's why. Um, so yes, we'll talk about that. So yeah. uh, I'm sure. And um, uh, we go to the gallery. Um, uh, very funny book. Uh, uh, again, it's a it's a kind of piss take and a parody on uh, contemporary, mainly postmodern art. Um, nodding winks to people like Marina Abramovic, um, uh, Jeff Koons, Gustav Metzger, you know, um, lots of, um, uh, and Martin Creed, who we'll, I'm sure we'll um, hear more about. Um, so um, it's, it's, it's a lovely parody, uh, but it got her into trouble, we'll hear more about that. Um, and um, other books that you have produced, um, ISIS goes to um, Sylvania, uh, Islamic State, um, uh, uh, which was uh, another controversial uh, uh, children's style publication. What's so controversial um, about that? And, um, and, and you've exhibited, you've had a, a, a yeah. series of exhibitions at some small independent galleries, um, but also, um, well, certainly the ones that I know, um, uh, a very controversial exhibition in Poland last year on political arts, and you were part of that, which um, the left loves to hate and loves to boycott. Um, uh, and we think otherwise. It's a bit more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then also you were part of the Passion for Freedom Festival, uh, which is a fantastic, um, was a fantastic um, visual arts programme uh, for artists at risk, um, usually from theocratic um, uh, Muslim countries, um, and artists that would, yeah, pretty much poke fun at religion and uh, and have their lives um, threatened and put at risk. But uh, Miriam was uh, very much part of that too, and uh, and the work was censored. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a lot of humour, uh, and she continues to successfully trigger the arts establishment uh, as well as the left liberal uh, kind of networks. I think I'll leave it there um, <laughs> uh, as an introduction um, and we'll hear more about your, your, your life and your art. Um, so I suppose really, you know, talk, um, you come from a family of artists uh, yeah. and uh, that Muswell Hill scene must have been quite interesting. So how, how, did that obviously have an impact on your on my life. On your life and your work and your art. Well, yeah. <laughs> kind of inevitably. Yes. You did uh, rebel and become a chemist. Uh, chemist I, yeah, pharmacist. I could have rebelled yeah. and become like a, yeah, um, an accountant. Um, so both my parents met at the Royal College of Art in the 70s. My dad was a refugee, came here from Beirut. Um, and he was on graphic design and my mother was on painting. She was more into him than he was into her. Um, three years later, he, you know, she got what she wanted, and I was born. And my my brother came first, nineteen seventy nine. I was born eighty two, and we grew up in a big, big old house that they bought for fifty p, because you could back then. And um, there was just a lot of art everywhere, a lot of books everywhere, um, and it was very unusual. There, there was death. When I went to my friends' houses, I realised that my family were different. Um, and there was a lot of different influences. Like, so my mum was like from this Ashkenazi Jewish family who'd come to England in the 19th century. And she'd grown up in Northwest London, in Kilburn. Her brother became a very famous punk. So there was a lot of that influence as well. The Bromley Contingent, uh, Boy George, the Sex Pistols. They were kind of like weirdly peripheral characters in my life, but that was just normal. I was a child. And my dad was like a, like an Arab Jew. So 
his thing was like going down the Edgeware Road and having falafel. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they were both, so my dad liked to smoke a lot of weed and do lots of like mad sculptures. But sometimes these giant figures with erections and stuff, he put them in the window. <laughs> and my mum liked to, to, to sculpt drag queens. That's all she was doing since the 70s, giant sculptures of drag queens. So you can't really get more lefty liberal than that, can you? Um, but then on a really odd note, they took me to synagogue every week. So every week I had to go to shul. I had to do cheder on Sundays, cheder on Thursdays. I had to read and write Hebrew. I had to understand what my religion meant. Uh, you know, I knew the Amida, I knew the Shema, I knew the whole... But they were very... kind of pushed me into being quite religious at the same time. So I had this weird conflict between these two worlds, one that was requiring you to be very modest and very conservative <laughs> and, <laughs> and very understanding of ethics and morality, and the other was just like, do what the hell you like, you know, you, here's your uncle, he's dressed in a nappy, you know. Um, no, seriously. So, and, and all like excessive and sexual and drag queens, and, you know, all of that. So I had both at the same time. And the Arab influence as well. So it's quite a lot to sort of mm. juggle. But I did with a sense of humour because that's kind of how it all came made sense in the end, I suppose. I don't know. I think, you know, yeah, it just yeah, made sense somehow. It's just very conflicted but very interesting. Yeah, it already sounds like a suburban spoof. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't kind think of, I could ever recreate what I grew up in, yeah. David Berry style arts lab, you know, yeah. in the 70s. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, really colourful um, family. Um, They're great, uh, yeah. Uh, background and uh, eccentric without a doubt um, so I mean with, with, with that kind of inspiration did they introduce you to interesting artists that you just thought oh my god this person is yeah. my influence well yeah um, I had you know they were taking me to a gallery almost every week mm. from a very young age we'd go to synagogue I'd do the prayers we'd do Kaddish go home have Shabbat lunch and then go to some crazy art happening after that and it would be like People getting naked and doing, like you, you, whatever it was, it was going on in the eighties and nineties. Happen art happening, so it was like that was what you did in the morning was go to school. Afterwards, you'd come up to Camden Town and you'd go to some some strange thing. And my mum would often just be slagging it off, saying it's not very good. <laughs> but she'd always make us go to the art gallery. It was like the two things that we had to do: the, the shawl and the art gallery. Um, so, but can yeah. you remember anything that really stood out that might have inspired you? Or you I had, um, there was a lot of artists that I absolutely mm. loved. I loved all the old sort of lefty socialist artists of the 40s, if you like John Hartfield and all the kind of uh, surreal, <laughs> abstract. Um, I loved all the Bauhaus. Mm. And I, I was probably too young to understand what the ideas behind it led to. I think it was only when I was older and I understood communism a little better that I realised it was a giant disaster. But... I, I was very drawn to all the aesthetics of it. I was also very inspired by my grandfather, who was a very famous caricaturist, right. um, who worked for the Mirror his whole life and was very into telling the truth about people, but was not very much liked for that. <laughs> uh, he was very humorous in what he was doing. He didn't write, he just drew. He could just draw, draw someone and bring out mm. kind of their true qualities, qualities yeah. let's say. Um, the only person he ever flattered when he was drawing was himself, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone else he made little... Um, so yeah, there was a lot of kind of humour and... 
and quite uh, risk take. There was mm. a lot of risk takers in my family. So look at my uncle Philip, who was obviously in all the Bromley contingent and all of this stuff. It, they, they, he just sort of was quite fearless and dyed his hair green and did whatever in the seventies. And then I had my grandfather, who was so as I was saying about his caricatures, they would blow them up really large and like drop them in Nazi-occupied countries during the war, and he'd sign them <laughs> deliberately to be like, "Look, I did it. Yeah, come get me." Uh, so there's quite a lot of that of risk takers in my family that mm. was seen as a good positive thing that you would do something ridiculous and yeah. So that obviously rubbed off on you about yeah. the risk taking. Yeah, um, I was drawn <clears> to. It. I liked it. So I was like, oh, that's quite cool. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because you know when we look at your work, it's it's not um, you know this kind of navel gazing conceptual art, uh, uh, and obviously you you parody quite a lot of that in uh, we go to the gallery. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that felt like my entire life went yeah, into that book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> certainly I, I can see that, that sense of satire and humour and comedy, although, <clears throat> like you said, John Hartfield is a much more um, you know, painful <laughs> kind of uh, work, yeah. and caricatures like George Gross yeah, yeah. Uh, and those sort of Germans um, uh, fleeing Nazi-occupied. Um, but I walk yeah. equally, as much as I was in love with artists and art, I was also equally as inspired by comedy, and I always mm. have been, but mm. specifically radio comedy, I considered it to be almost like a form of conceptual art to be able to write a really good surreal comedy script. So that was another massive influence. Well, while I was drawing and painting and thinking and collaging, I was always listening to really well-written English comedy, uh, particularly from like the post-war period. Yeah. So that's a huge influence on me, like Tony Hancock, The Goons, all of those. Mm. Um, and I, I couldn't see much difference between that and some sort of quite boring conceptual art. I thought that was better. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the two big influences. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tony Hancock, he, he did uh, parody quite a lot of the, the kind of uh, affectations of the time, you know, the yeah, level, the timeless. film. Uh, look back in anger, the, jo- the angry young man. If he, that's a brilliant Hank, Hancock half hour, and uh, so yes, he was ahead of his time uh, in many ways of uh, critiquing contemporary culture, yeah. cappuccino culture. <laughs> One remembers that in yeah. the Rebel. You know, yeah. What's that machine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Froth. <laughs> <laughs> I had all this this library yeah. of cassettes above my desk, and I just pick one. Mm. I used to go to sleep at night and put on Hancock. To some, you know, <laughs> laugh myself to sleep. So. <laughs> uh, yes, I think uh, if anyone's not uh, listened to Tony Hancock's mm. comedies, they are brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, uh, it, as well as the goons. It, yeah. It's funny yeah. though that listening to them is better than watching them. Mm. Much yeah. more powerful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hancock's half hour. Yeah, and the goons, and also just thinking of um, that, that kind of British comedy that perhaps you know, kind of. Uh, uh, works as a kind of, you know, it rubs off on you. Um, people like, uh, I think, Michael Benteen, yep. uh, you know, and uh, Spike Milligan. Yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting that you do um, take things from pop culture, I suppose, or popular culture. And, um, uh, and on um, one level, your work is, you know, it's, um, it's very accessible. Mm. Um, uh, and also, I just wondered, you know, is there sort of, because I was, reading a, an interview with Andy Warhol uh, around pop art and he just said you know we just turned things around to make art about everyday things that people would recognise rather, like rather than you know uh, abstract expressionists which was the predecessor mm. of uh, pop art and, um, and you know when you think of British pop art there was a sort of 
It's a huge influence too, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, just think about that. Uh, the medium is the message mm. and sort of working within a, a medium and then changing it. Like, I don't... I see the books as an artwork, and I always have. As I said, they are an artwork, and I do installations when I feel that that is necessary or, you know, whatever whatever idea I have, I change it and adapt it. And I learn the style in order to communicate that. But I think... I think that's primarily where I was going with it. Mm. And, and how did the Ladybird um, uh, idea come about? Um, so I'd written this... Um, I, so I left art school and I was really disillusioned um, because at that time I was starting to understand left-wing groupthink, starting to question a lot of ideas that I'd... were, were sort of normal. <laughs> um, and I and I found the work in art schools very dry, very uh, you know lacking in humour or or even not really even engaging in life, just kind of dictating to people what they should should you know almost like preaching to people rather than um, mirroring life, which I felt is what good art should do. So I became more and more disgruntled with that and the kind of nihilism at the heart of it as well. I think that really annoyed me too, but that's different. So that's why I got into comedy <laughs> as a kind of rebound from the art world. And I was full of this scathing hatred of contemporary art. And, but obviously, in retrospect, that's because I cared about it. Um, and I'd written this piece called Art School Checklist, which was a, like an I Spy book. You know, like, do you remember the I Spy books? And it was just all the cliches that you'd get at an art school fair, you know, like, oh, a TV set on the floor with a view of the sea on a bad day, tick. <laughs> oh, it's a, bloody, it's a bloody mannequin in a shopping trolley, tick. You know, um, <laughs> it's a, a girl drawing like she's four, but she's 35, you know. Um, <laughs> so it was just like, that was the, the thing that I... It was like kind of, rah, right, right the way through the system. And... It was published in a little zine at the time with some guys who were working for Vice, which I don't really like. Um, and I was, I was just folding socks, actually, and, and I looked at an old Ladybird book, because I collect them as well. Like, my mum always had them, and, and, and I saw my favourite book, which was called Shopping with Mother. <laughs> and I started looking at the illustrations, and it just, every time I opened this book, even as a child, as an adult, I just filled with delight. You know, it's like the bakery... You know, she goes to the fishmonger. And I say, it looks like this idyllic world that I never lived through because I was born in 1982. Nothing looked like that. Everything looked like super save and quick save. And, you know, that, that, that was just like this, this gorgeous past that I never experienced. And um, I thought, oh, those characters and this art school, you know, wouldn't it be funny if <laughs> just put these two worlds together? And there was like a crash. And I, I got... a. I started drawing a picture of Peter and Jane as detailed as I could and I put canvas in front of them and it said, why did you fuck me and leave on the canvas? <laughs> <laughs> Which was like an emotional, like Emin style uh, work or whatever and had them laughing at it and I thought, oh my God, this is just really working. And then, <laughs> then the next drawing was Mummy in the Empty Room, which is about existential nihilism, you know, and the, and I wanted to write it like as simply as I could, as if it was written for a four-year-old, you know, a big word. And why is there nothing in the room? Um, and really, 
what was interesting about it is I didn't, and I still don't, I don't write, I draw, so I illustrated everything. I did a lot of different paintings and stuff, and then afterwards I'd come up with the, the, the joke. And I was actually quite good at writing jokes, but they're artworks, but because I'd been working as a comedy writer for years after leaving art school, I could write a really good one-liner. Um, and it just all came into place. And as I studied design at, at Royal College of Art and printmaking, I had a real knowledge of how to make a good book, how to lay it out, how to, how to get the appropriate typography. So I just kind of knew that I had all the skills to make this thing that would be like, oh, <laughs> oh I've done it. And it was better than the other idea I felt because it just had this, this incredible optimism of the ladybird books and contrasting that with the, the nihilism of the present day and the kind of fear and the, you know, these broken relationship works and all this stuff. And it did come out of time. I, I actually dated Martin Creed at that time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was odd because I, I was in, you know, discussing that in my work and then we split up and that was really the impetus for me to make that book to, to just and it all kind of wrote itself from there so oh. so there you go so then after that I decided that I wanted to make a create a whole series of books just kind of using my the dung beetle idea and it became dung beetle because I was sued but that's another story um as a way of just reflecting what was going on every year mm. you know and it got very interesting when the pandemic happened. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah which, um, we'll, we'll get on into in a minute. Um, I mean, the, um, it is lovely for anyone who's not born uh, in the 60s or 70s. Uh, I'm obsessed 70s, with that period. Uh, I picked this one up called Play With Us, which has got a, a lovely little boy in an uh, American Indian headdress, which would probably be bands now. You know? Yeah, problematic. And, um, <laughs> Uh, and you know when you look at the Wikipedia entry of Ladybird books now, it is white you know, stereotypes. Uh, you know these are the products of empire. Oh, here we uh, go. Yeah. And um, so they they are now shunned. Um, uh, but uh, I love them. Uh, I, and and the modern Ladybird books are appalling. They just don't have the yeah. beautiful illustrations that obviously um, inspired Miriam hugely. Yeah. Um, and. Um, they just look so happy. Yes, <laughs> they look so happy. And of course, you know, it, 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 may, it may be um, uh, one particular uh, aspect, but you want children to be, you know, to learn and to be optimistic and to have, uh, uh, you know, a kind of um, happiness <laughs> yeah. part of their lives, you know. Well, we all you know want the that. misery will happen later. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, the, the founders of Ladybird really did see this marriage between the bright cheerfulness of uh, these images and learning elementary English, you know, for, because um, I think um, the founder of Lady Bird's book was a head teacher in Boston or something. Yeah, his first book was on birds, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think the one that really affected me was Shopping with Mother. Right. And I tried to parody it as closely as possible and we go out just by, by taking it. And, and really, I, by that time, I'd really learned how to replicate this style. And that you know, so that I was really proud of the fact that I could could take them and make this perfect thing, like this perfectly happy world that was all going off the rails, and all, and all contain it within an optimistic image. I thought that was like it, that. If I could do that, I'd succeeded. Then you got into trouble. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm always getting into trouble. Um, do, you, do you want to? Um, I don't really care. I mean, this. 
This is my so, first edition. So basically, yes. um, so this was, we, we did Edward the Hamster, um, whereas this was mainly me. Edward the Hamster was me and my brother. Uh, but we worked with Macmillan to do Edward the Hamster and we didn't really make much money out of it. And, um, and I kind of wanted to, we did, but it wasn't, you know, it was like book royalties and nothing, you know. When I did this, I wasn't really actually thinking about, A, making... It wasn't supposed to be a commercial venture. It wasn't supposed to be in bookshops. It really was a, a, an artwork. Yeah. And I started exhibiting these things that I was painting as prints in the galleries in various different group shows, and people would come up and go, that's so pretty, that's so funny. I was like, oh. no, thank you, it's very funny. And I thought, I have to make these, I have to collect these all and make it into this the book that that I can touch and hold and feel and it, it has to f- transport me into that time period and uh, I didn't know what I was doing I I just um, I asked my my dad warned me oh, you'll get you'll get into copyright infringement did you thought about copyright I said shut up it's art it doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> dad it's art it's only a few copies whatever no one's gonna care anyway um, so I raised the money through Kickstarter. And I just asked, it was, I thought, well, that's quite, you know, I didn't have any money at the time. I thought, that's quite good. You just ask people for 20 quid. If, they, if you get the money, you can print it. If you don't get the money, you can't print it. No one's going to lose. Yeah. And I got, I got the money. Some ga- and some galleries were just, like, throwing money at it because um, I showed some ideas. And we printed about 1,000 copies. That was the minimum that I could do on a good lithographic, mm. old-fashioned press, like, exactly as it should be. And a week after it came out, I was living in a kind of squat with my now husband and uh, there was a lock on the door and this guy came with like this letter that wasn't really a letter, it was like a... <laughs> Sorry, I've missed that part of the story. And a journalist called me that I'd known in the past and she said, oh, I love this book. I've just seen, you know, the Cobb Gallery. Can you talk to me? Do an interview about it. I said, oh, we'll do a quick interview. She was from The Independent. I thought, well, that's quite a big newspaper. Right, I'll talk about it. And, I, and she said, did you ask Sir Penguin for permission to make this artwork? I said, why the... I swore, <laughs> why the fuck would I do that? <laughs> um, it's an artwork, I do what I like. Um, and she put that in print. <laughs> <laughs> in a national newspaper. And the ne- literally the next day or the day after, and I remember lying in bed that night, on my <laughs> lying in bed saying to my husband, Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> He's like, oh, don't worry. No one's going to care. The next day, yeah, so there's a knock on the door and this guy from UPS and it was huge. It wasn't like that. It was like that. It was like a, it looked like a whole tray of white, you know, like a, that thick. And I opened it and it was this legalese. And I had no idea. And Earl G- I was living with my husband and this guy called Earl Gateshead, who was like a stoner reggae <laughs> musician, and he tried to read it. And we were both laughing, like, what have I got myself into? <laughs> and he was like, we're going to come to the gallery and we will confiscate every single copy of this book, this filth. You have pictures of Peter and Jane next to indecent artwork. <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, you know, it's just me commenting on the time I live in. Um, and, um, but it was quite scary, so I didn't know what to do, and the opening was that night, and I had this big legal threat, and I spoke to the gallery, and I said, look, what I'm going to do is put a little notice in each book saying this is no, this is not a pastiche, blah, 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 and, oh, yeah, and I 
did a little drawing of a penguin in court with a ladybird, which was a joke. And I sold it for a bit like, you know, when you go to a gig and you're like, you sell alcohol, but you have a token kind of thing. So I sold the copies of the book. I sold this artwork for 20 quid and said it comes with a free book. (laughs) 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 I am not profiting from the sales of the book, yeah? So they sold out very, very quickly. Mm. Um, And, but then then I thought they they were on to me and then I I hid the remaining books and then... um, and it got really bad and I had to talk to a solicitor and we were in and out of litigation for like months and months. It got very, very stressful at that point. And then basically what happened was it went viral because it, it was very funny and it went all over the world. People were writing to me and my inbox was like flooded with please, can we have a book? I'll give you anything. So I'm like, I can't, I can't sell it. You don't understand. And it was terrible because it, it's like I could have made millions at that point. <laughs> it was like that was my golden ticket. Like the whole world wanted something. I was like, I can't sell it. So I had to go through like all this shit for 18 months. Eventually I got the rights. I had a brainwave. Um, two brainwaves. First was... I. Uh, Really, when we got down to it, at first they were intimidating me, intimidating me, intimidating me, and then I started pushing back because I thought, well, I haven't got much to lose. I said, look, what do you actually own? A picture of a freaking ladybird. I'll change it. So I was sitting on the bus with my brother, and we were thinking of different insects. It was like worms, caterpillars, and then I said dung beetles, and I, and I thought, that's it. A big ball of shit. It's <laughs> 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 great. That's what I'm going through. <laughs> Uh, you know, and then I came up with the From Shit Comes Learning, <laughs> the learning book. Uh, so I thought, well, there's nothing they can do about that because you're not passing off. Mm. And then I had to re-illustrate it in a different way so it looked really distinct. And I changed the names of the characters to, like, Peter and Susan and John. Um, I used models to paint from that I scouted. I found out all the older Ladybird illustrators and I found out how they worked and how it was done. And yeah, I created something original after that. And I knew that by that point, they even because it had become such a controversy in the paper that I'd made a book that no one could buy, that the um, copyright law in England was changed. The parody, yeah. So there was a, there was a law for parody that you could... In the EU, you, you could parody, and in the US... But in England, it was actually still not passed. And they did, they changed the law. So I thought, right. I met a girl, a woman called Claire, who we're still very close to now. And she said, let's print it. Let's see how it does. And it just went crazy. And um, I looked up. So I didn't know how to print it because I printed it in a beautiful old fashioned press in England. But it was very, very expensive. Um, you know, you couldn't make a mass market edition. That was the artwork, but then there's a huge demand. So I ended up Googling Poland printers. I don't know why I went to Poland. I was like, well, it's... I don't like China. It's too far away. At least in Poland, I can go there. And I had lots of Polish friends, and I think they're great typographers in Poland. They're great printmakers, and they're great Mm. bookmakers. I know a lot about that. That's a different thing. And I found a a guy there, and he was like, okay, we'll see what I can do. And we've been working with him ever since. And and then at that point, I sort of became a business, which... Yes, you are quite... I became a business. I became a business. I thought, oh, I'm a small business. (laughs) Because before that, I'd just been a bit of a loser, probably. (laughs) Just making things and not really having any... I always had lots of opportunities. Like, I was always doing things, but I didn't know how to make money out of my own work. 
Um, so then I, yeah, became a business and I think we sold so many. It was crazy. I think I read you sold about 80,000. 80,000 in the, one, the, the in three or yeah, four days, in three or four edition. months of mm. the first mm. editions that came out. But then at the, the sneaky thing was that at the same time that all this stuff was going on with Penguin, they were employing these old comedy writers that I knew from my time as a comedy writer. Um, and they couldn't draw. They definitely weren't artists. And they, they thought, oh, this is a good idea. We'll have this. Um, and they, so they went behind my back. <laughs> well, we all know what else yeah. happened, you know, with all the... the the housewife and all this rubbish um but i consider my my works uh, artworks because i i paint them and i create them and they're original yeah that's 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 one more painstaking detail you know having visited you in your your uh, studio um you know it seems um, that you know they might all be photoshops but they're really you know are not the uh, the, the they're, artwork they're... are individually drawn yeah, um, yeah. You work with some collage yep. um, and... Well, it's just like a really long process. Yeah. And also they're like yeah, original so, ideas. So I'm not just taking... Mm. I'm not just taking something from the past and writing a half-decent joke next... It's not even funny line next to it. It's like an actual visual investigation. And I always... Each book I do, like... I'm kind of drawn to a certain theme and I'll make up a series of illustrations and then afterwards, as I said, I write the lines <laughs> when all the the uh so during the lockdown that was really like very inspiring because <laughs> that was such a like contrast with ladybird land that it was like, oh wow this could be amazing you know masks and, and, um, yeah. I mean, that's, there is an irony there you know that you gently appropriate in, in a loving way with the ladybird uh, uh, aesthetic uh and then they rip you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is a bloody good idea. <laughs> what did we think of that? <laughs> um, so, yeah. yes, uh, they do the sort of anti-Brexit ones. I'm not so. anti-Brexit. So I think also, like, a lot of the things that put me apart from maybe the establishment was my, my general views on things are just not... I don't, don't go with what most of the Muswell Hillian tribe <laughs> go for. Um, I don't think that if you voted Brexit, you're a racist. I don't think any, I don't think very many people are racist, to be <laughs> honest. I haven't met them. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's the, it was like when you turn, it's a bit like the lockdowns and things. It's like when you, when you looked at the news media and what was being said, it just was so one, everything was so one-sided and so mm. anti- debate even and so uh, belittling of anyone that dared step mm. out of this this kind of prison mental prison you know it doesn't make you a bad person for for voting a different way or thinking about something in a different way i'm not i'm not saying that I, i'm not saying that if anyone voted remain there an awful person it's like, that's so ridiculous yeah. and i felt like the, this this paradigm was being very orchestrated by the political class and the kind of media class that I came from, from Muswell Hill, you know? It was like, they all had this very... Mm. Um, and if you dare question it, they get go... <laughs> <laughs> because my dad, who's like, you know, came to England in the 70s with no money, uh, no English, no connections. Mm. 
He said, you know, by the end of the 80s, he had two design businesses, really successful, boy's own house. He's like, you don't understand, William. You could not do this in any other country. It's amazing. Britain is amazing. And he voted Brexit. <laughs> so I had a very different perspective. Like, I started to realise that the more immigrant people that I spoke to, they were like, yes, we love England. <laughs> and the more of my like, white middle class friends were like, oh my God, it's so red. It's like, this, they were living on two different planets and it just, it was quite funny and they couldn't see themselves in the mirror. It was like, so yeah, that yeah. was the beginning. And then obviously Trump happened and COVID and all these other things. Yeah, and then um, uh, uh, your, you had a brief anonymous artist name uh, for ISIS... Uh, I really wanted to do something about IS because it was everywhere. You know, everybody was like, oh my God, if I go on the tube, I might get blown up by a Muslim. Um, (laughs) Which I thought was, it was ridiculous. Um, But the fear, you know, the fear that the the media can generate and then switch to the next fear and switch to the next fear, you know, don't have us believing in anything. Um, I felt like that was something I wanted to, I like to comment on what's happening at the time. And I, I had a Sylvanian. Uh, I had a, I had a lot of Sylvanians as a child, as a child, and I sort of kept them in my. I keep stupid stuff. I remember putting one in a hijab and going, oh, "That's kind of funny. That's kind of funny." But it's not that funny. Uh, and then I kind of got took it a bit further and dressed a few more of them up. And then I slept looking at Shemima. What's it begun? I thought, oh, this is interesting. If I just use Sylvanians and animals. And then, yeah, my friend Sally came down to me. And we'd just done We Go to the Gallery. It was a big success. I had suddenly quite a lot of money. And I could just do what I wanted for the first time and not to worry. I quit my job and just like... And I knew that this wouldn't make me any money, but I d- I'm not actually motivated by money. <laughs> I'm really not. I was like, it's nice to have some, but now I can get on with this thing. I'm, I knew I wouldn't make any money from it, but I had to do it. And... I said, oh, I want it to be like an Argos toy catalogue. <laughs> you know those pictures in yes. Argos? Because it's another kind of kitsch. It's another kind of fantasy world. So we, set, we built models in my studio and we had them. I said, oh, they have to look like they're totally oblivious to this threat. Like, you know, they're little... And they're in this multicultural fantasy world. Like, la, 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 la. You know, with a little caravan and they're all having a lovely multicultural picnic and they're all really in love with each other. And then you've just got these, like, guys... In the corner with like massive guns and machetes and like, like nice, I love yes. and Balaclava, like deeply threatening black flag, and it's just the contrast and the blue sky and all of that. Um, I it just had me like if I start laughing a lot when I'm working and then I feel nervous, it's a good thing. <laughs> I know it's good. So um, yeah, and so that that's. Um um, that exhibition, which is part of the Passion for Freedom uh, uh, season uh, um, in the Mole Gallery. So, yes, yes at that time I did ICA. ISIS in Sylvania, I showed it to the Passion for Freedom people. And they were, I mean, I didn't like all the work that they were showing, but I liked their commitment to freedom. And that's, you know, mm. it wasn't on an aesthetic level, it was on a kind of political level that you should be able to but, express but, but your work especially triggered the police um... yes so all the work in the whole thing yes. ISIS in Sylvania triggered like the police and the, the Met people no no can't show this it might trigger a terrorist attack in London and someone might come and kill the Queen I'm like because well, it's near the Queen's house Buckingham Palace is obviously there this year 
I was like, that's really ridiculous. Right, right next door at the ICA, you've got the most kind of like crazy pornographic work going on and some like really out there, you know, like stuff. But for some reason, ISIS in Sylvanian families, that's haram. So they, took, they said, you have to pay £36,000 to show it so we can have a security guard next to it. <laughs> and I said, what's he going to do? Shoot people that don't like <laughs> This is ridiculous. Uh, it was infantile. So, yeah. But then I passed that. I was talking to another journalist I know. Uh, and she was saying, oh, what's going on? I said, well, I've had this other thing taken down, blah, blah, blah. She was at The Guardian um, and they ran a story on it. I recall that, yeah. And, um, and then I'd just come back from Vietnam and I turned on the radio and it was like, ISIS in Sylvania has been censored <laughs> from the wall galleries. And I was like, oh my, I didn't use my name, I changed my name. Good reason, I yes, think. Yes, yes, at the time. Um, yeah, and it, there was a huge like debate about whether it should be shown, and everyone was like, of course it should be. And they asked Muslims, they're like, why would you not show that? It's really funny. <laughs> um, yeah, but it was, a, it was the first step into this kind of t- um, safetyism and, and tyranny and uh, mm. trying to protect people from, from expression. That, that was, what, 2016? And now yeah. we're in overdrive, but back then it was just kind of starting. Like, we can't hurt their feelings. Um, what they can, they can chop my head off, but you can't hurt their feelings. Okay, mm. so it's kind of amoral in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's, and, it's, and, it's, and also it's, just you know, like the, the privatisation of the police force that they'll mm. they'll um, they'll give you security if you pay for it. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's a very interesting relationship between the state and freedom of expression, um, mm. uh, which we can sure talk about further. Um, so yeah. Then, uh, you know, the, um, the We Do Lockdown, so the lockdown years, 2020 to 22, uh, that was, yeah. inspired these two books. Yeah, so this is... Um, um, so We Do Lockdown and We See the Sights, which is... So the minute the lockdown started, I do a monthly for The Critic, which is kind of like a place where I get my ideas down and um, they allow me to just do what I like and none of my left-wing friends read it so they don't even know that I'm in it. <laughs> And one of the weird things that I've managed to do over my life, which I'm quite proud of, is somehow not... I've never been cancelled, and I've managed... I think I will, eventually. And I've managed to kind of entertain, you know, like, sell well at the Tate Modern and things like this. So they can't quite place me, I suppose. Mm. Uh, but the critic just gave me the freedom to question everything, and I, I thought... My instinct to lockdown was, what the hell is this? Like, you don't lock people up because they might get ill, like that's, that'll make them weaker. Um, and I'd very, inf- inf- my son, I have two children and my, my oldest son is handicapped and, um, and he has a life limiting condition and I was told uh, very early on to lock him up <laughs> for two years and not let him have any contact with anyone. And I said, oh, for Christ's sake, that'll kill him to this NHS. I said, I hope you're not telling other people to do this, it's balmy and put the phone down. And I stuck to that all the way through. I did the complete opposite of everything I was told, just instinctively. You might have called me a a danger to society, whatever. I just thought it was all wrong. So I took my son out to see my mum every every week. Uh, I met my friends, I formed a community, actually formed a really positive community. We lived around the corner. Um, and all our children are absolutely fine and we're all absolutely fine and I realised it was a psychological thing like if you fixate on any one fear you'll see it anywhere you know there are many many things that affect us and you know you can't let fear govern your life which some people really enjoy doing 
So I was using my characters and putting them in this world. And uh, the first thing they, the first one I did was uh, they say, oh, we can't see your, we can't see grandma for three months. We can't see your grandma for three months because we have to look her up to save her. And, she, and the children said, but we haven't seen her since Christmas last year. <laughs> <laughs> you never see grandma. You don't give a shit about grandma. So... <laughs> And that was like the first time I managed to get to people and then the whole thing about food shortages and like, there's no lemongrass. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just like a pantomime. And weirdly, I think with my son's diagnosis with Lay syndrome in 2019, I went through probably the worst thing that anyone could ever go through. And I decided not to be scared and I decided to be happy and to enjoy life. And Sid, he can walk, you know, which is amazing with Lay syndrome. At the age of three, he couldn't walk. <laughs> uh, you know, he was given... I, I, I've, I've been through so much with my son and my younger son. that I thought, no, if you just stay positive and you keep trying, you let them fall over and you don't do any of this safety shit, they'll get stronger, you know. So that was my... my uh, impetus to, to, to just stick to that trajectory. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this... Um, safetyism and fear and obviously the first line in the book is uh mummy saying oh we're all gonna die of covid oh, everyone lock yourself indoors and then she goes oh you said that about climate change last week <laughs> it's like you start to realize that you're governed by this really unhinged narrative it doesn't make any fucking sense and the truth is no one even knows what's going to happen next week like if someone comes along in a scientist coat and tells you you're going to die if you believe them you're an idiot like you don't know like, like live with that so what, what, what I was saying, my point was living with uncertainty. So I was told my son was going to die at the age of three, maybe lucky to make it to five. Last week he walked like two miles around London Zoo. So you don't know. They don't know, you know. So um, no one can tell you that in order to influence your behaviour. And, de and definitely not to do something negative to you, I think. So that was my take on it. And, and very uh, timely at the moment with the... Matt Hancock's uh, 100,000... Yeah, I knew it would all come out. Um, uh, <laughs> and, uh, like, they have people shut indoors, looking at a TV set for 12 weeks of people dying, and they say, come out and put a mask on. I mean, if that's not a death cult, what is? <laughs> it's crazy. And it's like, if you watch people die of cancer every day on television, you'd feel pretty shit. It's like, mm. it's, it's the fixation. So yeah. it's, all, it's all coming out now, which is great. Yeah, no, I think uh, uh, the, the manipulation and yeah. the fear, the culture of fear, the state of fear um, is, is incredible. And, you know, um, how certain scientists um, were scientists. <laughs> uh, with, with, in the hand of government. And, you know, again, another very important feat, uh, uh, article by Ian Birrell, a uh, very good journalist, questions, you know, how... how um, that narrative was kind of driven by, was, by a political agenda. So I did this book and it was the only humour book about <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> and it sold really well. Like, Waterstones just plugged it and, you know, because... And I did it in such a way, because I'm, I'm quite sensitive. And like I said earlier, I don't think if you vote a certain way, you're a bad person. I really, I really don't. I think people vote different ways for different reasons. I also think people experience fear for different reasons. So I don't hate someone because they're scared of something. That's also ridiculous. So I tried to make it not to humiliate people. I tried to just make them see in the mirror their own... Yeah. The, the, the kind of lunacy of it. <laughs> without I mean, judging them. I think that was the, the aim. 
Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, we could can't carry on talking yeah. till oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. all night. So we're going to open it out to the audience. Mm. But just very quickly, you're going to have a, an exhibition, as I said. Yes. Opening next Friday. And mm. you've been literally slaving away in your. Yeah, the deadline was. An hour ago. An hour ago. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and the Eostowski Castle uh, invited me to uh, curate Miriam's show, which I was really delighted to do so. Yeah. It's like uh, coming full circle with a, with a friend um, and someone's work, whose work I really love. Um, so come to Warsaw. It's really happening. You know, um, Hopefully I could get it shown here in London yes. as well. You won't have to. I think um, if, if we can get a UK gallery, that would be a challenge. Yeah. But, um, uh, how, you know, because it's not also oh, oh, just quickly yeah so the the this one is they're all mm. locking themselves in and panicking about the virus mm. and this one is like you're re-emerging into your uh, your city that you've that has been abandoned for two years and it's like let's go on a sightseeing tour everything's normal <laughs> uh, so that was my way yeah. of kind of uh, dealing with all these new themes, uh, the, the the woke thing and the Black Lives Matter and all these things that were happening at the same time as the the relentless fear and death obsession, mm. um, the gender thing as well. Well, there's a million genders all of a sudden, and my child needs to know about that. And um, so I was questioning all of those things, which I think are like uh, they're, they're 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 an ideology. So I, I wanted to, to poke, like naturally want to poke fun at things that I think people take too seriously. Which is probably why Poland is really attracted to your work. <laughs> because, well, because, uh, oh, this is very true, because com, uh, <laughs> communism uh, and all sorts of terrible things have happened to Poland, and it's made the, the people very resilient. Mm. My grandfather was born in Poland. Um, my mum's dad was born in Warsaw and came to the east end of London about 1900. Um, but yeah, that's a long time ago. But yeah, because they've experienced this kind of intense state interference in their life, they instinctively do not trust authority. That's right. Mm. Um, and that's a good thing. And I think that's why they're so interested. They're committed to freedom and to expression and, and questioning things. So that's why I can do it over there. Hopefully, maybe the tide is turning in the West. I think it should do so. We hope so. We hope so. <laughs> but the institutions are very much captivated by this paper-thin ideology, I call it. Okay, I think time to open out. Um, so uh, let's take one, two, then three of them. Okay. Yes. So you said uh, that uh, you hope things are improving. Um, and I wonder, so there's, uh, I've, I've heard this in various circles, this idea that we're past peak woke. It's a sort of idea. But then there's another idea that, that I've, I thought about recently, which is, I think it was actually Jordan Beatty who said, he said that when you're dealing with um, activist revolutionaries who, who are true believers, you <laughs> yeah. know, you are, you know, so they'll, they'll push you to a certain point, then you'll complain, and then they'll stop. Yeah. And then they'll start again. And they'll push you too far. Yeah. And then you'll complain, and then you'll stop. Yeah. And it goes on and on, and then a few years down the line, you look back and you go, where the hell are we? We've just drifted two miles that way. Yeah. Because you were pushed a little bit further than you wanted to be pushed every time. Mm. So I'm wondering, do you think that this idea that we're past peak work is actually a downturn, mm. and then the true believers will wait? Because they, they're in a true position of authority. They are the gatekeepers in the... Yeah. In the arts establishment, you know, they, they, they hold the financial keys and so on. 
It was very important for me to be independent. That's why I never sold my company to anybody. Because I realised in 2018 that it was becoming ideological. Even, even in 2012 when I was at the BBC, I was like, oh, there's certain things you can't joke about. Oh. So, so, do, you so think, do you think we're past it? Or, or, or do you think those people have to essentially... I think we're talking about... Be removed, you know? They're a minority of people. They're not, the vast majority of people do not believe this because it's complete crap. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. really, it is. Yeah. But, but, but and I, and they know that they don't get a feedback because they live in their own little mm-hmm. uh, feedback loop. And they, they live in their own fear factor. They're, they're scared. They're scared of... They don't have any fighting power. They just lie and lie. And they kind of hate themselves as well. That's kind of the base, basic part of it, is, to, is this kind of unchecked self-hatred that... Mm-hmm. Any kind of sense of pride of who you are or where your ancestors come from is seen as being a far right white nationalist. So it, I kind of feel sorry for them, but at the same time, they have this incredible power over media, over um, uh, classrooms, over the kind of general landscape. This is a problem because more and more people are not having it anymore, you know. I don't, I don't know if we're past it. I just think we're, we're going to have to start. Um, as a Jewish uh, woman with a disabled child, maybe I can get on, on stage. <laughs> oh, I'm a Jewish woman with a Lebanese father and a disabled child. And, 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 and say this is, this is really a way of hiding behind your arbitrary characteristics to, to, to avoid taking responsibility for your life. You can be a professional victim and you're never responsible. It's like a slave. Great point. <laughs> Next. Miriam. Sorry, that's what I think. If you think I'm wrong, whatever. Yeah, we'll, we'll get Thanks, Miriam. I have huge admiration for your work Thank in the you. Paris. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to talk about the left and the mechanics of how we got to where we are. I mean, we have these periods of iconoclasm and puritanism where thought is shrunk down to a narrow path. Then we have people like Orwell, um, you know, the, the, the satire boom, the punks you know, let's open it up and let's be free for everyone to express themselves. How, what do you think of the mechanics where we've come back into this very narrow um, area that we can talk and think about things and we, we've closed down thinking outside that? And what does that mean that the left oscillates between these two modes of, 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 of the puritanical, iconoclastic and the very open and, and liberal you. I don't know. It's it's like a it's. Are you saying it's like a a, a never ending process in a way? But it it's not. Um, I think it's be- it was so iconoclastic. It, it's become the iconoclasm has become almost a cliche in itself. So now we have to to question that to go back to some kind of almost like it feels insane what we're what we're living through. Like to question what is a woman or. You know, is the sky blue, or am I racist for doing the gardening? Or it's becoming more—it's becoming more and more unhinged that people are now going to have to look back at to sort of core ideas within—I uh, hate to say it—but religion. This is this is where it, this is where it comes from. I mean, you can't just throw religion out of the of the whole Western world and expect there be no repercussion because there there is meaning within it. I'm not a religious person, but, there, but you, it doesn't take a, a, a genius to see that a lot of satirists were actually quite devout Christians because it gave them a moral framework by which to look at reality. If you remove that moral framework, what are you, you're now looking at uh, reality through 
this fake lens of oppressor versus oppressed, which is, again, the Marxist way of looking. I don't know. And that's tremendously fun. <laughs> this is where I, you know, I, I have every... I love left-wing art. I love... I love every, all the things that they did were incredible. But at the same time, there's a destruction to this kind of very central code of how, who we are. And they're trying to replace it with this kind of like codswallop ideology that you could just question it for like two seconds and they're like, you're a racist. <laughs> you know, and really it's, it's not... Really, what needs to happen is, is questioning needs to happen, I think, within those institutions. Because it's happening in what museums, mm. art galleries, all the formal. It's not so much people on the street. You know, like with Black Lives Matter, they made it look in the media like it was, oh God, like a million people going, yeah, we've got to stop being so racist. It was like, what? There's like 30 art students, you know? <laughs> it, is, it is deeper and more entrenched than. than Sorry? That. It is deeper and more entrenched than that. It's. In, They've, ca they've captured the institutions, mm -hmm. and it's brought... And look at polling, you know. Mm. Gary Lineker saying that Mr X is a, a Nazi because he said why. That's... And then you look at the polls, 57% of people are pro for what he said. Oh, I don't trust polls. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, they were like, 90% oh, of people want to be locked up for another two years. <laughs> oh, really? Really? Yeah. I don't, I don't trust them. I think most people would... Okay. Look, sorry. Catch, there, there was... Uh, so there was... Chop over that and then. Um, oh, hi. Hi. Uh, yeah, my name is Mike. I've to a really on a nostalgia trip because before you, were, before you were born, I was a student living a couple of yards over there at Two Mouth attending UCL, which in those days was one of the great universities in the world. And now it's a, it's a woke hellhole. So <laughs> 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 I was ashamed to say that point there. Um, um, lots of things I could say, but, but you, you almost answered the question I was going to ask, which is that, um, I, mean, I don't know you are, I'm just learning it as, as we go along, but obviously its form uh, was conditioned by that slightly anarchic liberal upbringing you had, but its content really seems to have been um, 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 created by that Orthodox Jewish uh, um, education you had, didn't it? Yeah. Well, it's weird. It's, I think because I had that Orthodox Jewish education and uh, unique access into this other world, both the secular and the religious, I understand both. Not in detail, but I understand something that most of my friends that went to Haida, for example, would not, because their parents would definitely not be in this other world. They would be in this kind of safe, suburban Jewish world, and that was it. Um... But yeah, it gave me a moral compass in which to look at things. And it's quite a basic one, but it's anti-collectivist. It's a very, very simple thing. But yeah, I think that is actually, yeah, spot on. And that's not going to change. Because I believe that to essentially be kind of true. Um, and uh, I think all this kind of hiding behind your class or your... <sighs> your sexuality is just that when you really think about it it's like well that's just your sexuality is not what makes you a good person <laughs> you know what I mean it's like whoever you like to sleep with is not it's not anything yeah. to do with how you are in your community or are you helping local old people or doing a soap kitchen I don't know you're doing something good for people you know and they're trying to replace it with uh, no that's what makes you good 
that's what makes you a good person. This this fly this flag of multiple sexual whatever, <laughs> and that makes you a good person because you've been oppressed. Okay, so it's based on some truth, maybe, but it's it's like weaponizing that, I think, and it, that's why it doesn't feel right. Fifty-seven varieties of gender. Yeah, the, or a hundred <laughs> varieties of gender, whatever. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Seventy-three, actually. Seventy-three. <laughs> even more than. It's, it's as irrational <laughs> as any religion. Yeah. Um, Okay, that's the woman at the back there with the glasses. Yeah. Yeah, you. yeah, I just wondered what you think about the form of satire. I guess would, you would describe what you are doing as satirical in a way, which is, is I guess, holding a mirror up to life. Yeah. People not only guessing it, if they guess it, I, guess, I remember when yeah. you speak. Yeah. For example, um, people actually, people you're satirising actually really love your art. Yeah, that's one of the weird things. Yeah. Uh, people that share my moral values don't really like my work. People that are like really decadent and really into all this Black Lives Matter stuff. We love your work, Miriam. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. So I'm actually talking. I have a communication with that audience, I think. That's, and I don't want to jeopardise that. That's a very good thing. Can I give you an example of that, sorry, just in real life? Okay, sorry. To... We'll get back okay. Yes, yeah. Try and get a few of these lots of eager hands um, front. Yes. I mean, I've got two questions. First, sh- surely the latest free speech champion being Gary Lineker is clearly your idea. I mean, it's <laughs> come out of your book. But um, secondly, picking up on that satire point, I mean, I, I was really thrilled when you mentioned those sort of post-war comedians, you know, the Spike Milligans and stuff. I, I remember that I used to watch Michael Benteen's Potty Time as a kid. <laughs> and then later I found that all, all of the sort of subjects of all those shows were like, you know, the storming of the Iranian am, uh, embassy and, <laughs> and, you know, sort of various terrible things that got in the world. But he managed, and Spike and those other people, managed a kind of satire that had some sense of goodwill about it. And we've sort of gone so far into a where there is satire today which isn't a lot most of it seems deeply deeply cynical but you're not in that place and and the people that you're satirizing are your audience which is yeah amazing i wonder if you can say what the difference so, is you know that. one of the artists i satirized in we go to the gallery is marina abramovich <laughs> You must all know her work. And she, her husband contacted me and said, Marina is the biggest fan of your work. <laughs> she wants to meet you. So I went to meet her and she was like, Miriam, everybody thinks I'm a Satanist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, I don't know how they could have got that. <laughs> it's how absurd. <laughs> um, and, and she wants me to work with her this show for the RA this, this year. So yeah, that's very much a question of the the um, people are drawn to the opposite, aren't they? They want they want us to, to laugh. They want to laugh at themselves because you can't believe in something that is so dogmatic and so as an ideology, it, it, it's just debasing yourself constantly <laughs> and not thinking that you'd do any better as a human being than that. You've got, you're going to need to laugh, otherwise, you, you know, it, it's an odd one. And I have, I have the tools to do that, I think. Or maybe not for long, I don't know, you know. There's, 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 
they're very quick to cancel these days, but um, yeah. Couple of this, couple of uh, yes. You, you. Um, so I've been out for a while, and I've seen something that repeats itself by a lot, which is artists who will preach the free speech stuff, preach yeah. you know, similar things to what you're saying, but as soon as they make it up into the high echelons, they tend to pull the ladder up from under them and yeah. instantly change all of their views to you know what is the going kind of cultural thing. What yeah. do you think about that kind of, I guess, phenomenon? And sell out. How do you present it? <laughs> Well, they're just, it's just self-serving. It's like, uh, it's pick and choose, isn't it? Like, now everyone's going on about freedom of speech. It's like, for three years... Don't the free speech three, warrior. Yeah, three years you've told us that freedom spreads disease, that free speech is a right-wing nationalist Nazi. I mean, they're full of it. So, I, you know, it's whatever serves the woke, whatever serves the, their narrative of of, oh, we're all racist, or we're all this, or we're all that. Wherever they want to tell themselves, they'll find the kind of... And, you know, if it suits you at that point to be like, yeah, democracy and freedom, you'll say it. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you actually believe that, I don't think. People, you know, like like you said, you'll get to a certain level and be like, oh, yeah, sure, you know. They certainly stop being so controversial, I guess, would be uh, thing. Because they're not controversial. But how do you how do you think you spot that in an artist that's coming up? You, you just sort of know, don't you? Because like everything is like overly sexualized. We were talking about that in the car, me and Becky. It's like everything's being so overly sexualized all the time is like supposed to be shocking and controversial. It's completely normal. What they what they are is, is that's that's normal. That's their sort of normal. So to 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 go against it in any way is deeply threatening to them so you know in in a way like this my uncle's punk um subversion which i kind of admire in many ways is now like the least offensive least shocking thing in the room you know whereas someone saying hey maybe you shouldn't dress like a slut (laughs) maybe that's not a great idea Maybe there's something more important than your sexual preference. That's like, oh my gosh, haram. You know, unless you're a Muslim, of course, in which case they leave you alone. But um, <laughs> so, so there's all these kind of... Uh, the, the, those are all the, the points that, you know, that they, they're very sensitive to. And then they, they can't deal with it, so they just call it a right-wing <coughs> Nazi. I think someone called... I went on GB News and then... Oh my god, that's like haram, isn't it? And then someone, someone called me a white supremacist. I said I'm Jewish, and she and he went. There were lots of Jewish white supremacists, <laughs> actually. And I said, I said by white supremacist, do you mean anyone with a moral compass? And he went quiet. Um, so yeah. I think there's another person at the back. Um, was there someone? Another hand at the back. Okay, um, just sit. Could I ask you to elaborate? You mentioned earlier um, having coexisted uh, in a universe of faith um, among trendy lefties in Boston. Debauchery, yeah. Um, what does the faith side of you, how, how does the faith in, um, inform side it's of you? It's like the energy. 
the trendy, lefty, wokeist? Do you, do you see it as a pseudo-faith or, yeah. or as an anti-faith? Or how, how do you see it? What, 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 what is it that you're... How do you see your enemy, as it were? Well, the enemy is within, you know. It's like I am part of it as well. I'm not, I'm not standing there on my high horse like the Ayatollah going, women, cover up, <laughs> homosexuals, get back indoors. I'm not doing any of that. I just understand two systems and I understand what's better for people in a way. And I think I understand what's better for people because I've been in an incredibly uh, difficult situation with my son. And that, that really led... Uh, but, that, but then having said that, even before I had my son, I was very critical, very judgmental, uh, always wanting to tear things up. Um, and my mum really influenced me by... Like, Judaism, at its very heart, is very iconoclastic because you can't have any false idols. So in a way, like all this collage and leftism kind of was quite interesting to me. She used to give me the Burlington catalogue, which was like a, you know, you know the Burlington catalogue as a kid? And she said, oh, you can use it, just rip it all up. You weren't actually going to buy anything in it. Um, so I was very influenced in that way of thinking. But at the heart of, of Judaism is a, is, a, is, a, is a moral message and a faith and a connection to God, which is what was given to me as a child. And I, disc- I had it. I always had it as a kind of... I spoke to Ian Hislop about this, but it was like a kind of a way of, of, of holding up a mirror in a way, because you could contrast. You could, if, you, if you've got nothing to contrast something with, it, it, it's, not, it's not funny <laughs> anymore, you know? Um, so I used it in that way. I, I just got, I think with, with lockdown and what was happening with my son, it just got much funnier, because the contrast got greater. And faith is basically an enjoyment of life, really. Wanting to be happy, wanting your children to be happy, not wanting to sexualise people, particularly children. <laughs> uh, and also understanding the importance of having a family and, and, and uh, a community, which is kind of something that I've actually found. It's not about this... Um, with my uncle and all the Bromley contingent and all that stuff, it was this kind of like uh, instant, sexual, instant sexual gratification and I'm going to just be outrageous. You know, I'm the centre of the world and they're like children forever in a way. And it's sad, like, I, did, <laughs> I had to do a bat mitzvah, my brother had to do a bar mitzvah and it's like, no, I'm not a child anymore. I'm in touch with my inner child, but I'm not a child. <laughs> and a lot of this infantilism in, in, in what we're seeing in the left is kind of that. It's like holding on to that, but it's really sour. And, and yeah, sorry. Um, so... Any more questions? Um, got a couple of um, repeat back to some new faces. So, um, yes, woman there, and then the chat next to you. Hi, um, do you regret, I mean, the, that Labour sued you, or do you think it maybe added more kind of like, I don't know, boundaries and restrictions to highlight the freedom that you could actually um, express as an artist? I think it was probably looking back, it was a terrifying thing, but it was a good thing. And I think quite often the things that you perceive as being scary or awful or negative are actually blessings in disguise. Everything is a blessing in disguise. You just can't quite see it <laughs> in the moment. So, uh, and it gave me a sense of... A, I felt like I was rebelling, actually, and it, it really... Uh, I, I actually... Even though it was horrible to have to go through the litigation and all of this stuff, 
um, yeah, I felt a lot freer. And then after that, I thought, I can do whatever I want. And I'm going to do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. But I remember saying to myself, this isn't about money. This is about um, the art. And you should never, ever sell your business to anyone. It doesn't matter how much money they offer you, because then they will tell you what you should be attacking. And in fact, yeah, they did, Macmillan were like, we want to buy Dung Beetle. They offered me a lot of money. They were like, you know, you could do a really good book on all these pathetic Brexiteers. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Out. <coughs> Interesting. So I, you know, yeah. I, I knew that it would just, it would not work if I did that. So yeah. It's integrity, actually. It's just having integrity. It's a trade-off that you don't get the big, big glamorous career, but you just get to express yourself mm. as you wish. So. Thank you. Uh, what did you feel about um, London specifically as a place to kind of make and display and uh, perform art? Um, because you know, it's, it's changed quite a bit, I guess. Over the course of your career, um, you hear stories about you know, exhibitions getting uh, uh, cancelled, people getting metaphorically chased out, physically, um, not being able to display things. Um, yeah, actually, when I came to those shows, I just got bored of Street Fighter, it was quite popular and um, seemed quite good. Um, getting quite a good crowd, and it seemed quite accepting. Um, so I wonder if it is that bad here, um, or if it's I think I know people that it seems like they there's this mob maybe particularly bad in America and I know people that have have been violently threatened like Andy Nago and um, people like that um, but I think over here do you know what it's like what if you were in 1935 and you did something in London about the brown shirts. You wouldn't just not do it because you were scared. Like, they're a bunch of thugs. They, they're anti-fascist. They're fascists. You know, and one of the last pages in every single one of my Dung Beetle books, it's in every single one of my books, is a picture. Of, it's all about a book called Why We Burn Books. <laughs> um, and there's a picture of a girl and a boy putting a, a book in a, in a fire. And I always put, show them that, like, you know, you're, the, the leftists now are the real fascists, basically. And their technique is to just call everyone a fascist <laughs> in order to... They, don't, they can't even define it. But that, I think we still have a lot of freedom in London if you choose it. I mean, obviously, the police are definitely not on our side. Um, the establishment is not on our side. Um, there's all different forms of tyranny now, you know? But uh, you, that's not to stop, you shouldn't stop doing, you shouldn't stop questioning authority and you shouldn't stop uh, your, your own thoughts and your own expression. Because if it's making people laugh, then there's probably something in it. <laughs> you know, because these people aren't funny. Even comedians now are just not funny. I can't watch the TV because they, they don't have, uh, they don't, they're not, they're just saying what they're told to say in order to get this fake life, you know? fake celebrity, fake views, fake everything. It's not true. They even tell me what I'm supposed to be scared of, like, oh, I would never leave London, Miriam, it's just full of racists everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. It's absolutely not true. And I said, well, if you go to most countries in the world, you'll find people that are fearful and xenophobic and homophobic and all those things. Like, it's, it's, 
they're, it's like a dementia for them, you know. But like I said, I think I love London. I've grew, grown up in London and I would find it very hard to leave. Um, you know, actually, one of the greatest influences of my life in London was a couple of doors down here, number, number 18. There was a, a basement and I used to go there in the 90s and there was a, one of the oldest uh, left-wing... Uh, uh, dancers of the Bauhaus movement. Her name was Hilda Holder. She was a hundred in 1999, and she used to do this kind of abstract expressionist Russian dance. My mom used to send me to these lessons, and she she didn't believe in in having too much music. She just had sticks, and she'd whack the sticks on the floor, and we had to do all these kind of weird poses. There were loads of pictures of her in the twenties, kind of like you know just before she escaped Nazi Germany. She was an incredible woman. But uh, so I, I just have this incredible love of, of London and yeah, and my grandfather was here, my great grandfather. So. Oh, one more question. Yes, one more, yeah. and then we're going to have a little um, creepy further. Mm. What strikes me is that you've got a very strong moral compass, which you've talked about in relation to your religion, um, and and then you say all these other people, the woke people. Um, who call, a, call everyone else fascist, they're fascists, and they just want to tear everything down. Um, but I just wonder, um, I'm not religious, but I also think we need an alternative moral message, in a sense, or, yeah. or message to give out there to counter this, because it's, it's one thing to question everything, you need an alternative, yeah. You need an alternative, and I just wonder, have you got any... Yeah, I do, actually. Um, <laughs> it's just called the Noah Tide Laws. <laughs> There's six of them, they're very basic. <laughs> they were written about 5,000 years ago, and they were what everyone was adhering to, and when you don't adhere to them, things just collapse. <laughs> um, and it doesn't matter what kind of faith that you... Or don't practice. I for mean, people who are not familiar with that. Uh, you know, for example, don't steal from people. Right, uh, yeah. You know, that's a very big one. Like now in LA, you have uh, you can just go in and shoplift, and the government <laughs> says it's okay. I don't know if you know about this. It's under a thousand dollars. under a thousand dollars, they won't do anything. So that's immoral. Um, uh, you know, don't kill people. Don't uh, burn their house down or threaten them. <laughs> That don't lie in court. Well, we've seen plenty of that, haven't we? Um, you know, there's, they're very, very basic uh, truths that I think are... Um, you know, I don't have all the answers to everything. I'm not an ideologue. I, I don't believe that there's some great new utopia. But I do believe there are ways of... The most important thing, I think this was what Martin Luther King was getting at, is I want to be appreciated for what I do and my actions and how I have a good life. <laughs> Those around me, and, and not for my this obsession with arbitrary characteristics that are really fine, but really what you know it doesn't it doesn't uh, vindicate you or something, you know. I think you make a really interesting point, uh, Miriam, because um, uh, another promotion about Poland, um, we're we we we're organising a series of debates called Culture Tensions. And the next one on the 30th of March. So why not come to Poland so yeah. also for a whole week? Uh, it's, it's about, um, uh, it's, the subject is on the spiritual renaissance. And um, uh, seeing quite a lot, um, so we've got a, a Catholic, a Polish performance, new media artist uh, speaking, um, who's written a lot around you know, embracing post-modernity and Catholicism. 
and trying to find some kind of way between you know, a kind of um, way forward in those yeah. two po- polarities. Um, we have uh, a Ukrainian artist um, whose work is very, uh, you know, within during war, the sense of spirituality becomes uh, has a, a, a distinct um, uh, meaning and uh, and, and um, uh, strength that it gives you. Um, so I think she'll be talking about that. And um, uh, and the third one will come to me in a minute. But you know, That's these these discussions are really important. And there's a w- wonderful interview with Nick Cave in um, the, the Times uh, over the weekend about him turning to religion um, um, uh, and. Uh, very good interview, uh, uh, with uh, a conversation with Rowan Atkinson. Archbishop. No, yeah. But I've noticed though the church and the synagogues, yeah. uh, to a certain degree, are very mm-hmm. complicit in all of this. Mm-hmm. Like you go in there and all the LGBTQ banners, and they're very, very uh, weak actually in questioning things and, and falling for it all the time. Um, because they don't want to be seen as, you know, unkind mm. or, or right-wing or whatever. And uh, it's a, doing them a disservice. It's like, you know, um, that that is a problem that you can't... It's like an ideological battering ram that you can't get around. I think one of the main things that needs to be tackled is this obsession with phobias. Mm. Like, looking back through history as just sexism and racism and all these irrational hatreds and not looking at any other reason as to why things were they were the way they were. I'm not saying they were great. I'm not saying it was heaven on earth. I'm just saying it was different for a variety of reasons. It really throws people when you question, you know, for example, why was, I was talking about this in the car, why was homosexuality frowned upon in the 19th century? Well, first in the Bible, but most, most importantly... People wanted big families because there was no state support. So you had to have like eight, nine, ten kids. Five of them probably wouldn't even reach their fifth birthday. Most of us looking back in our families have that. Very few don't. If someone was uh, not conforming to that, it meant they wouldn't have a lot of children. <laughs> it's very simple. And, and, and that's why they had to have big families. That, that was how they supported each other. Who was going to look after you when you were old? There wasn't anything like there was now. So... When you, when you kind of add these things into, like, well, maybe some things, there was a reason at the time it was like that. And, you know, why did women stay at home and have lots of kids and not go to work? Well, because, you know. But now this reductive left-wing ideology that I have been raised in and now questioning on overround. What, because men irrationally hate women? <laughs> really? Is that it? That, that, that they just go, oh, bloody women, get back in the kitchen. I mean, these are all... You know, also, rate this whole thing about racism and say, well, a hundred years, even six years ago, my mum growing up in Neasden had never seen someone from Jamaica. So when, you know, because mass immigration didn't really start till 50s and 60s. One of the most natural reactions you have to someone that you've never seen before is shock, maybe fear. You know, it's just... (laughs) I'd completely not, you go anywhere in the world that would happen. It takes time for this integration to happen. And actually the church and the moral message of Christianity was what brought people together. It was what made us see past those superficial differences and say, well, okay, we're all functioning and let's all create a kind of society where we're following these moral guidelines. It doesn't matter what you look like, no one cared. You know, so the, the le- the, this ideology of like the obsession with ir- the irrational, the phobia, the unconscious... 
this is really, really dangerous. That really needs to be questioned for me because I feel that that's not... I feel like that's a lie, actually. And it's really hating of people. So there's one more question. Person, yes, at the back. Um, right at the back. Going to the pub right there. <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough now. Okay, well, we've still got um, another, how many, women 20 do minutes or so. Um, no, we can stop whenever you feel like. Okay, but we've got lots of questions, so... Yeah. Um, Sorry if I've gone on too long. Yes. Me. Yeah. Um, you, you love London, and um, to me it seems to be something of a bubble. And I'm wondering whether your sort of work is more or less um, successful and could be much more outside London. But actually, it seems to me that it is a sort of way of taking the piss out of things, and that perhaps real people who live out there um, in the rest of the country might be much more, much more sort of, let's say it may have more of an impact. But I don't know if I'm just making... It has, actually, because uh, a lot of the galleries and bookshops that, that, that really support me are, like, all over England. Yeah. Mm. In Whitby, in Scotland, in everywhere. Um, I've, I've, it's not just a London bubble thing, I don't think. I, I have managed to... And particularly with the art gallery one, because um, people felt when they went into an art gallery and they saw nothing or... <laughs> or you know, a relationship breakup poem or whatever. The, 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 they're, they're, they can't question it and they feel beneath it in a way. Um, that, you know, they can't, they couldn't possibly understand. That's, that's the, the, the feeling. And I enabled them to laugh at that and the artist to laugh at that because that is a real issue, I think. Because it, it, People don't feel it reflects their actual life. <laughs> it might reflect this kind of London circus that I'm in. But I think some of the greatest artists, particularly of the 20th century, came from working class families outside of London. You know, and we're doing fantastic work, um, uh, which is a completely different issue. But um, yeah, enable people to laugh at this pretentiousness that they, they are too stupid or the plebs that can't understand, you know. So I think that, that that's why it's so well outside of London, actually. More hands. Um, so we'll get people that haven't spoken yet. So um, I'm quite interested in, say, the... It looks like there's a masochistic relationship that people have to ideology and that they become more pure by adhering to a certain ideology. They become more, sorry? But they become more pure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. ideology because it hides behind the personal yeah and that's why it's so pernicious yeah 
because uh, you feel like you can't it's like I can't question your feelings I can question uh, an idea but your feelings oh my god they're sacrosanct like uh, you know who am I? They're invulnerable. They're they're beyond that. So that's what it's hiding behind. Yeah. Um, I think the first step is for people to understand what they're what what they're being brainwashed into believing, <laughs> and the the roots of it, and the ideas of it, and comparing. You know, and it needs to come from. Uh, I hate to say it, but the the groups of people that they eulogize. They eulogise uh, black people, people of this or whatever, or disabled people, victims. So it needs to come from that. That those are the people that are going to start questioning it because it's, 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 like I said earlier, it's horrible. I feel so sorry for anyone that's at university now and having to go through that, and and also to pay for the privilege of this in terrible brainwashing. One of the features of religion that I, I think is dangerous is confusing belief with actions. Um, so quite often people believe in something that makes them feel pure, and then they believe they're a better person just for their action of believing in it. They don't actually have to practice anything. <laughs> they don't, it doesn't have to manifest in their day-to-day routine in any way, shape, or form. They just have to believe. A lot of, And that, that's fraudulent as well. Um, it's really like I when I said that it's about your actions it really is about your actions and the thing about wokeism is it's all about words and thoughts and the appearance of COVID makes it more interesting and much more especially the last one because then you do have an action and you do have a question about your physical views or what you feel about the lockdowns and what you feel about um, COVID and that was a very clear distinction between who who would be willing to perhaps be at risk of of revealing, yeah. Mm. And it, it's like there is a real action there, and it's, it's not necessarily like you want to believe one's helpful or not. It's like I, the choice to not wear one would immediately be what would define you as being um, outside of the box. Well, I didn't wear one the whole way through, no, yeah. Did I. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's like you have a landline and people. If I had a spiritual reason why I didn't wear it. When I, I was enjoying going against everything. I was enjoying my auntie looking at me going, you're a spreader of disease. I was like, <laughs> yeah, sure, whatever. Um, uh, for me, removing your face is removing your connection to another person. And in, in Judaism, we're all created in the image of God. So the face is the most important thing. We all have to see each other's face. If you remove face, you remove God. You remove energy, you remove everything. Every kind of spiritual connection that there is. I don't even know who you are. It's also deeply amoral. You're creating a world where no one is accountable. This was very important to me. If you have two young children and everyone's in a mask, someone takes your child. Who is that person? Before the pandemic, people just looked at people in masks and thought, well, that's a burglar. <laughs> that's an armed robber. And suddenly a little, everyone looks like an armed robber. The destruction of community. Destru- you know, it was, it was horrible. I'm still processing it now. But that's why I didn't, and I, I thought this is going against everything that's very core to me. Mm. I can't, I can't, you know, I'm sure I upset people from that, but whatever. So, yeah, so the, the new normal that uh, uh, you're going to be exploring in your exhibition, mm-hmm. uh, uh, opening next week. In Poland. And, but um, I will share the but, uh, prints know, there, online. There are some new works that there's you've new been works, working, yeah. um, and that really does... Um, 
again in the sort of you know, the brave new world in that oldest Huxley thing. Not going to give too much away because it's so one of the things that I, assume, I, but, um, um, sorry, I won't go on too much. Yes. They're very dystopian, but they are. So I love those general English service wall charts from the 50s that they use in classrooms to kind of go, look, the seaside or the office. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? They're like rather large and beautifully painted and they're just normal life. (laughs) Uh, So I thought I would take those and call it the new normal. And so we, uh, my assistant and I created these... um, uh, we're supposed to be six, but we did five in the end. Five big prints of, uh, you know, normal life. And it's like, a day at the cancel culture ministry. And they're all like, cancel, cancel. And there's loads of emojis. Of people, oh, um, oh, there's a, um, a little farmer van, which is like an ice cream van selling uh, drugs. <laughs> to kids, you know, puberty blockers, antidepressants. Um, so it's like taking all these themes and then, again... Similar in using a past style, but it's, um, I like the idea of that, like, what is normal and these authoritarian channels and, and things and the government just telling you that that is suddenly normal, you know, and it's not. And it's like what you said earlier about being pushed and pushed and pushed. Yeah. At some point you say, well, no. One, one, last one last one question. last one and then we are going to wrap up but is that, is that last question last hand yeah go on I was going to ask you about um, friendship and over the years over the trajectory you've been on how the friendships you've maintained even with people who kind of diametrically oppose where you're going with friendships you've gained and friendships you've lost and how you keep all of that in check or in balance I don't know if that makes sense but I'm interested in people who how their relationships have evolved in yeah. relation to the concept of your work and what you do. So my friendships with, with, with people. Yeah. Um, well, I'm very, I'm very good at making friends. Uh, I'm quite a sociable person, but then at the same time, I'm very private, if that makes any sense. Like, uh, I, only very, very few people know me very closely. Um, but... Um, Friendships with artists have really changed me a lot, particularly artists that I don't like <laughs> uh, and I've become very close to. Um, don't like their art? We don't like them. Well, no, sometimes <laughs> I, I really like their art and I, had, I dislike them intensely or I really like them and I hate their art. Um, so so that, that does it. But then I have just... My, uh, my husband, I suppose, is my best friend. Uh, and he doesn't care a thing for my art, which I love. <laughs> he goes, oh, great, what, you know, that's fine. He's, he's just not... He, he, he chuckles, but he doesn't kind of... You know, we've been together for God knows how long, but um, he's not pretentious, which I really like in people, actually. And my friendships are probably the most important thing I have, yeah. And my children, who are... A, a laugh. <laughs> um, a lot, yeah. Also, being a, a mother and an artist is is intensely hard work because you you can't just uh, sit around and, and ponder what your next thing is. You know, every minute of the day is like uh, quite full on. I am a carer as well, and that's a reality of my life. Um, but I embrace it, and and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with it. <laughs> That's a good uh, note to end on, yeah. Miriam. Um, 
it's more I could ask you, you know, what you're going to do, and, you know, what's your five-year plan, you know, as an artist. Oh, like Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you want to be? Where, what's Catch the next great piece of work? Kill that yeah. lot there. <laughs> but um, uh, we have a wonderful body of work through the books. Um, please go out and buy them, you know, if you haven't done so. Um, you supported a struggling mother. A struggling mother victim. And, I'm uh, all right. I'm fine. Uh, and, <laughs> um, but um, yes, I think it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I've always enjoyed. I'm just. I'm probably one of the, the very few yeah. people that question all of this language of patriarchy and sexism and colonialism and all of it. Um, much to, to the dismay of my sister-in-law, um, who who loves that kind of mm. rubbish. But yeah, I, I just like to dismantle it because I just think it's not, not the truth. So yeah, and it's, it's quite interesting um, having to explain to what the Polish audience what preferred pronouns is. <laughs> oh, don't get me started. And uh, unconscious bias. I've been having to write interpretative text. Uh, uh, to, so know, if, to you deny, who... if you deny that you're a racist, you're a racist. <laughs> That's yeah. the, the logic. <laughs> exactly. But it's, it's just interesting, I think, you know, uh, are, are we just living in this um, Anglophone kind of hysteria? Um, yeah. Does it translate to other... Um, I think my generation went off the, off the rails and they were hedonists. So for the most of my art school years, everyone was just complete hedonist. And now they've kind of gone, oh my God, what have we done? You know, and they're doing their religious phase. But they don't really have a religious framework, so they're kind of just making it up. You know, that's the way it is. So let's give them a round of applause. I have to say, I found that really, a really interesting as well as entertaining conversation. I thought a lot of what you, to me, you are sensibly subversive or subversively sensible. (laughs) You know, sort of like, there's something about what you say that seems like, that's complete common sense, and yet it undermines everything that seems to be going on at the moment and challenges it. So I, I did really enjoy that a lot. And also, I also, one of the things I kind of really got from you was a sense that satire is not cynical. So it's a sort of, it's a process. The satire, in a way, is done with love and with love of humanity, but a, a hate of the things that get done to human beings in the name of goodness or whatever. So... I just, I just felt that that's, was a great... Yeah, that's very true, yeah. yeah. So I just, you know, I felt it was great, um, a great uh, a sort of interview. Uh, just one thing you didn't really mention, your website, but Miriam Ellen has a website, so Google Miriam Ella, and you Elia. will get... Elia. Elia, sorry. <laughs> Elia. Um, and you will then find her products on her website, and you can buy as much it's as you like. It's called com, and we have all our books there, and... Um, all the art, all the artist edition books are, uh, we have, but all the ones in the bookshops are like the commercial ones. So, oh, we have this lovely lockdown oh, play yes. that I want oh, to yes. show you, which is the COVID nineteen lockdown commemorative plate. It's amazing. <laughs> which is deliberately horrific and has um, imprisoning the elderly, forcibly closing small businesses, uh, shutting up the playgrounds arresting picnickers, assaulting protesters, and my favourite is the campaign of fear that says, it's a bus that says you're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and in the middle, that's all the MPs having wine and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Blowing 450 billion. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
So we only have a few left. But <laughs> yes, yes. that's... So they, they're very radio times, you know? They look good. So um, the next session, the next event that we're having is on Tuesday, March 28th. So it's in just over two weeks' time. And that'll be um, Andrew Calcutt, who has, uh, is a news poet. And a news poet um, is a form that he's developing, which is sort of like a performative form, which turns news items into a, a way of talking about the news through poetry. And it's really an interesting um, and different uh, kind of experience. So I would really urge you to come along to that. And that's on Eventbrite right now and, and Facebook. So do have a look and come along to that. We will all, anybody who wants to, will go to the pub now, the Spread Eagle, which is sort of around a few bends, but basically on Camden Parkway. So it's only about 10 minutes away, less than 10 minutes away. So do come and join us there. And um, yeah, just keep checking us out, Googling. And the Academy of Ideas, if you want to sort of know more, broader picture of, of where we're situated in um, the pantheon of things, uh, check out the, pan- the Academy of Ideas website and all its varied podcasts and videos and so forth. There's loads of material there that you can get your teeth into um, and enjoy a critical hour or two uh, thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks ever so much for coming, and thank you. you.